I'm former senior magazine editor Keith Reed, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo. This week on Run Tell This, Mara's out on assignment, and Wes and I are joined by CNN anchor Abby D. Phillip to discuss what's being called one of the worst assaults on American democracy in decades. Are we witnessing the end of free and fair elections in the United States? Also, Abby discusses her Great big news with the Run Tell This crew. Welcome to the show. Abby, a longtime friend of the podcast and a longtime friend of mine, former colleague at The Washington Post, and now is the superstar host at CNN. How's the new show going? It's going well. I mean, you know, when you take over something, it's like always a little bit of a, uh, like a work in progress to make it something that, you know, that reflects you. So I think we're still going through that process, but it's been good. We've gotten our round table back. Um, people are coming in and seeing each other in the flesh. And it's been great, actually, because that's been missing for like a whole year. And it's a totally different show when you actually get to be face to face with people. And actually, that that's that that's kind of crazy, right? Because launching a new show in network or launch, launching any new show, local network podcasts, like if you want it to be done right, it's difficult. So what was that like to actually launch something or take over something in this space that was so unusual? Inside Politics is a conversation show, right? So it's it's best when people are kind of picking up where the other person left off and there's you know, back and forth, and there's kind of like a dynamic between guests, and that's completely absent when you're remote, for the most part. Sometimes you get really lucky, and people are really great, and they jump through the screen at each other, not in in a good way, not in a bad way, um, and that's all great, but, but that was not there, and so it was challenging, but then again, at the same time, we did some different things, and so I do think even in that time, there was still like some interesting things that we were able to do because we didn't have the roundtable dynamic for as long as we did. So, um, you know, in some ways I, I do miss a little bit of that, but it's also great to have, it's great to see people, frankly, and it's great to have real conversations and it's great to have, you know, that dynamic back at the table. Now, what do you think of this conversation that's happening, I think kind of across media about this idea of the loss of the Trump bump? Right, that like politics has yeah. changed a bit now that there's a different presidency. Things are less hectic, less crazy. Maybe people are aren't like anxiety watching CNN the same way they might have been previously to see if a coup happened overnight or if a secretary got fired via Twitter. How do you think about audience and and what that looks like? You know, hosting today. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not the same drama that it's been for four years. That's definitely true. And I think that that's okay. I mean, I think that we have to relearn how to do other things, how to care about other things, how to put other things in the right context. But, you know, what's really challenging about this moment is that even while there are a lot of people, and I get this pretty much every week, why are you talking about Trump? Why are you always talking about him? He's not president anymore. He's not, you know, you're always talking about Republicans. There is like a serious story on the other side of the aisle, too, 
that needs to be covered because if you ignore it, then you're ignoring something really important that's happening um, that in some cases needs to be called out. But um, I think it's okay for some people to be a little bit more checked out at the news and go do something else, go hang out with your kids, hang out with your friends, you know, do other things with your life and don't be glued to sort of current events anymore. Um, And then we in the news media, you know, we have to get more creative about how we talk about other stories and how we bring other important issues to the forefront. I think that part is still a work in progress. I still don't think that we figured, I mean, it's, it hasn't been that long. It's been like, what, five months? But, um, but I still think that there's a lot of work to be done to relearn, you know, okay, this is, this is politics, government, you know, like what's the government doing for people? And make, let's make that interesting too. I kind of kind of uses this metaphor of like nobody wants to be stuck in traffic, but every but everybody slows down to watch the to, to watch the car wreck on the other right. side of the road, right? right. Like right. that's how we are as news consumers in in this country, and I just I get it, right? We this is turned as much into a business of entertainment as it has as it has one of of information, but at the same time, like for those of us who have been trained as journalists and who take the craft seriously and who actually believe that this is supposed to be still be a pillar of our democracy the fourth estate if you you know going back to to J school how do you how do you balance that right when you say we've got to get more creative about how how we do it i think what some people hear is that now we've got to find yet another way to make this all more entertaining how are you going to try to strike some sort of balance between keeping keeping people engaged on your platform and keeping people informed? Well, well, first of all, you're totally right about the, like the rubbernecking and like, that's what I see in the audience, right? People complain to me constantly about covering Trump, but they always stop to watch, right? Because he's like a car crash and they can't help themselves. Um, So that is very much true. I think, um, People underestimate the degree to which even they are most attracted to the craziest story, the most, you know, what really like the sort of entertainment factor of it all. Um, But when I say get creative about telling other stories, what I mean is that, you know, I actually think for four years, we've just gotten used to sitting around and like talking about, oh, wasn't that a crazy thing that just happened? Like, we're just used to just sitting around and talking about things and not doing enough um, showing of what people are experiencing, going out into the world, you know, finding people, telling the stories in a different way that makes the broccoli less bitter, like feel like you're doing less work um, in the sense that we're coming at it in a different way. What we call wonky stuff is underlying that is real people and their lives and their experiences and communities that have been kind of ignored for four years because we've been so busy rubbernecking the car crash that is uh, Washington of the last four years. And so uh, I think that that's what I that's what I mean. I I don't know that it's going to ever be like entertaining in the same way uh, that maybe some people found the Trump era to be. That's not really the point. I do think that it's just about creativity and storytelling more than anything else. Yeah, you know, Abby, it 
part of it also to me seems like it is, as you said, kind of getting out into the country and telling stories that are different. And by that, I don't mean necessarily going to a diner, but going to Boston, as you did in interviewing Kim Janey, the first black woman uh, to be mayor there, right? These are politics stories. They're stories about elected officials, but not every one of those stories has to have a Donald Trump angle, right? It doesn't have to be about the White House. It doesn't, you know, I, the example, I think I've used it on this podcast before. One of the examples was, as we were waiting for the presidential results to come in in November, which of course, and obviously is going to be kind of the main focus on that election night, right? You had ballot measures like in Oregon that basically decriminalized all drugs. And so like, while we're sitting there at the board waiting for nothing, like I'd be really interested in like learning something about all of these other things that were on the ballot in a given election. And I do wonder about that balance of like Washington versus the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And, you know, that in fact, a lot of important stuff happens that isn't happening on Pennsylvania Avenue or in Congress. It's true of like when we're covering voting as an issue, right? Like voting um, becomes a national story, you know, in the lead up to election day every four years or whatever, or maybe every two years if you're lucky. Um, But what's going on in the States is so consequential. And, um, you know, what's going on in the state legislatures is so consequential. And who some of these characters are, none of them are named Donald Trump, but they're all doing something that is of great significance uh, at both a local level and a national level. And I think that, you know, we're getting around to some of that stuff now. Um, I think we have been covering that story. And I think that that is, we have room to do that because, there's not as much taking up all the oxygen in one place right here in D.C. that we now have a little bit of breathing room to look out and say, OK, so here are some trends that are happening all over the country. And like, let's explain to people why that starts to matter for them. So that that's actually a great transition into kind of our main topic for today, which is this battle for democracy and over voting rights. Um, and historians have said that this is something we haven't seen in decades, this level of grappling at a state and local level about who gets to vote, how they have access to the ballot box, um, and what our democracy and electorate looks like. Um, Mara sent along um, a quote from the Yale University historian Timothy Snyder um, and his analysis and his prediction of what he thinks we're seeing right now. So I'm going to read that really quickly. Uh, Professor Snyder writes, the scenario then goes like this. The Republicans win back the House and the Senate in 2022, in part thanks to voter suppression. The Republican candidate in 2024 loses the popular vote by several million and the electoral vote by the margin of a few states. State legislatures claiming fraud alter the electoral count. The House and the Senate accept that altered count. The losing candidate becomes the president, where no, we no longer have a democratically elected government. No one is seeking to hide that this is the plan. Uh, if your platform is that elections do not work, you are saying that you intend to come to power some other way. The big lie is designed not to win an election, but to discredit one. Uh, you know, It's interesting because Professor Snyder is not the only one who's kind of laid out this type of potential endgame of what could be happening with these quote-unquote audits in various states, with the Republican kind of messaging around whether or not we should trust the election results. Uh, There are others. But it does raise this question of, like, are we seeing a, a coup or an overthrow of democracy that's happening in slow motion? And even subbing aside of whether or not we are seeing that, right, if we were to be seeing that, 
how do we cover that and how do we talk about that in real time, right? It's a lot easier to talk about something that has happened and like all happens in one swoop versus something that theoretically could be happening. Yeah, I mean, all of those are great questions. And I think that what um, what that Professor Snyder describes is actually not a hypothetical situation. It's actually something that um, did happen. It just didn't work. <laughs> I mean, um, the in the lead up to, or, you know, after the election results were clear, there was a real effort in several states, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Georgia, to have the legislature reverse or overturn the results of the election uh, in certain parts of certain states in order to um, award those electoral college votes to the losing candidate. That was a out in the open thing that people actually tried to do. And, um, and then you had dozens and dozens of members of Congress and senators defending those efforts um, under the guise of fraud, of which there was none. So it, it's not a hypothetical situation. It, it actually was attempted. It failed the last time, but it's no guarantee that it's going to fail again, because now um, rather than trying to do it on the back end, they're trying to do it on the front end. And I think that the answer to your second question is like, how do you cover this? Well, first of all, you cover it by not acting as if it's some kind of outlandish scenario. It's a thing that has been attempted once and will be attempted again. And if it is attempted again, that is a clear uh, example of an anti-democratic, um, you know, effort. It's something that, you know, kind of contradicts everything that we've come to know about what democracy should look like. And we should be specific and clear about that. I, you know, this is where it matters whether reporters are willing to tell the truth about this stuff and not sort of treat this talk about voter fraud and about election changes as if it's all on the up and up. We know that it's not because we know what the objective is and it's based on, um, you know, it's based, I mean, obviously it's based on a lie. That's why we, we call it the big lie. But like in some ways, maybe we need to figure out some other way of describing this because the big lie is becoming cliche. Okay, fine, whatever. But the the reality is, is that this is, these are not good faith efforts to secure anything. The underlying objective here is to give partisans in Republican-led and controlled states the ability to overturn the will of the people so that when push comes to shove, if it's necessary, they can do so. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's actually one, one way in which our business has changed and needs to respond, right? So like, Wes has written about this a lot and has talked about it, this sort of battle for or battle over what it means to be objective in the modern era, where, you know, what we were taught in journalism school and what generations of people like us have been have been taught is objectivity is presenting both sides. Objectivity is, you know, playing it straight down the middle and not taking, you know, not interjecting yourself as, as a person into a story. Objectivity is not, 
you know, not taking e either side, but just letting one side speak and let letting the other side speak and doing as little analysis as, as possible. The reality is that's not objectivity at all. It's not objectivity when one side of the both sides is not acting in good faith. It's not objectivity when one side's goal is to obfuscate and to lie and to, and to sort of just shift the conversation every time they're caught in, in the lie. That we just sort of all agreed, when I say we, I don't mean those of us in this conversation, but I mean we as a profession just sort of all agreed that there was some level, you know, some politicians are going to fudge it and they're going to spin, but there was some level of just like basic level of truth and decency and, and, and conduct. And all of that is gone now, right? Like the veil is off, the gloves are off. We as a profession have to begin to and I and I've seen it I've seen it on on your show I've seen it on your network and I've seen it on on some networks more than more than others but I have to be willing to say like that's a lie that's a, that's a lie which was verboten right it was a thing that you you weren't it, there was a point in time when you weren't used to just like just call the official just call the president call the press secretary <laughs> A liar, but I think it's like now we're just we're in that place where you've got to say, no, that's a lie. We're we're just not. <laughs> that's yeah. that's just not true. You're you're lying, and we need to call it that so that we can continue to have a conversation that's somewhat steeped in reality. Right, right. I mean, when I first started as a political reporter, this was you know, I guess some ten, twelve years ago. Um, it was in the old Washington, where everybody got the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you just reported what politicians told you. And, you know, if it, if it turned out to be true, oh, it must have been a mistake, so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it, that was cute. It was quaint. But I actually, you know, when, when Trump came along, people were so offended that he forced us to... Um, to be more skeptical, <laughs> to be more, to be more critical, uh, to not take his word for it, and I, my my reaction to that was actually that's okay. It's okay for us to be a little bit more skeptical when politicians tell us things, when cops tell us things, when when you know fire chiefs tell us tell us things. When anybody tells us things, we shouldn't be giving people a pass as journalists just because we think that they have power and that they are probably doing the right thing. And you got to get over that because that is actually part of the job, in my view. And um, that's people, you know, if people just wanted to, like, read one version and another version, they'll just go on the Internet and read one version or another version. But, like, you're, you exist as a human being with a brain, you know, computing power up there to help people sort some of this stuff out with context, with historical context, with your own experience, what you've seen with your own eyes and ears. And, um, you know, I also think that uh, th what some of what we're seeing is a result of the increased diversification in the media business, that uh, as the media has gotten more diverse, you have more voices that look like you and look like me saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. Hey, wait a minute, let's not give this the benefit of the doubt because we know that that's not really what's going on here. Hey, you know, and so that that's why di 
diversity, not just racial diversity, but all kinds of diversity matters because you have people coming from different perspectives and saying, hold on a second, uh, your assumptions about this situation are maybe not, not true. And we need to look at this from a different perspective. I think that's one of the reasons why you saw, um, you know, black and brown reporters being among the first to be clear about Trump's uh, use of race as a political tool. Uh, that's why you saw, uh, you know, in the way in this era of the Black Lives Matter movement, not only activists pushing um, pushing this forward, but black reporters uh, being clear that you can't just read the police report and report it like it's the Bible. You have to do more. And I think that's what diversity does in our in the news environment. And that's why it's, you know, I think it has changed the way we cover politics, the way we cover criminal justice and all kinds of issues, especially in the last 10 years. Going back to something you were saying earlier, though, because this is something I think about a lot, especially around this conversation of voting and democracy. And in a world in which we can have a, a journalism that is fair, but also that accepts that our journalism has values, right? And what I mean by that is like that we believe in democracy as a value, right? It's the thing that empowers us to do the thing that we do. And so therefore, we are dispositionally defenders of such a thing, right? And I, and I, and I wonder about that, right? Because I think that like I've been kicking around this phrase values-based journalism for a while in my head and trying to think about like the expression of that because you – you know, in private conversation or in, in things that are, are less heated, journalists will often say, well, of course we stand up for like racial justice and equity. And of course we believe in democracy. And of course, well, well, you know, what does it mean for our journalism to do that at a time when those things are imperiled? Okay, what does it mean to believe in democracy as a foundational value of the journalism that we do? I mean, that's why I like to think back, you know, one of the reasons I ended up becoming a journalist in the first place was because like a, like many of many of us, you know, we look back on the times when uh, values mattered, you know, during the civil rights movement, um, when when it mattered whether or not you believed that a little black you know, child deserved to go to school just in the same way that a white child did, or that whether you believed that lynching was uh, was an egregious, you know, crime and a moral wrong. I mean, those are values too. And people, we don't look back on that and say, oh, wow, they really picked a side there. It's like, yeah, they picked a side. It's the side of morality. And I think well, that we they, sometimes they, are in that position. But they didn't always though. Right. So well, not everyone did, I guess. Is, my point is not everyone did. But the but the the civil rights journalists of the time who put those stories forward did. And those are the people who come out of that era with a looking better than the other people. Cor correct. But I guess the point that I, the point that I was getting to was that even even then. Right. So like we're in this we're in this place now where we talk about a reckoning in the country, in newsrooms. And it looks in some ways very much like 1964, 1960. Yeah. Well, you didn't have journalists like when when all hell broke loose ar around the country in, in 1968. One of the reasons we started getting, you know, we started getting journalists at places like the Washington Post and at places like, you know, and at the New York Times. 
because they didn't have anybody who could go into those communities because these newsrooms were segregated. To the extent that they did have black people in those newsrooms, they were typesetters or they worked in the mailroom. And, you know, there are, there are tons of stories, right? Like we're all, you know, part of NABJ, right? And, and if you go, unfortunately, we're starting to, to lose that generation of people. But, you know, in, in years past, going to NABJ for young journalists meant going to hear these stories of people who became legends in the business, but who would tell you. You know, my first assignments were when I had a microphone handed to me or, you know, I was a I was a copy boy, but they didn't have anybody who could go to who could go to Watts or they didn't have anybody who could go to the South Side. They didn't have anybody who could cross MLK. So they handed me a notebook and sent me out to talk to people. And then my career was born. Right. Like that's how NABJ itself was created. That was we, like that organization is a vestige of that. So the point that I'm the, the, the point that I'm making, not that I was disagreeing with you, but it's but it's just to say that like diversity in newsrooms and the impact that that black journalists and journalists of journalists of every stripe are having on newsrooms today is very much in in sort of the same way a uh, you know a twenty twenties version of like these hard fought games. It, it feels like. Every couple of every generation or two, every few decades, something happens and they're like, oh, shit, we need some black people. We need some women. We need some like, <laughs> right. you know what? The women who the, the, the women who who very capably covered and brought these stories to, to the forefront about me, too, you know, six or seven years ago. It's not like they weren't capable writers or reporters that didn't have the perspective and didn't know that this stuff was going on prior to that stuff happening. It's just you weren't paying them no attention. You you weren't listening to them. Maybe that's just what it is. And the burden is always going to be on underrepresented groups to tell our own stories. But at some point you would hope that like that becomes a, one of these foundational values of journalism that you and Wes are talking about. That this is baked into what we do. Automatically it happens so that you don't miss that story the next time and go scrambling for people. I totally agree. And I often talk about, you know, like people are always asking me, oh, you know, what's the importance of diversity in journalism, so on and so forth. And it's all the things we discussed. But I also think that what's really, really deep down inside wrong with journalism is the inability of non-people of color, non-mostly you know, mostly white people, to see other people and to cover them with the same degree of empathy and cover them with the same degree of specificity. And, um, and there needs to be an, more of an insistence on that, not just on, uh, you know, the burden doesn't always have to fall, shouldn't always have to fall, on Black and Hispanic and Asian reporters to uh, to understand those communities that we're this it's twenty twenty one okay like white reporters need to do that work too and I think there needs to be more of a effort to insist upon that I mean yeah we need more diversity but we also need you know white people in newsrooms to step up too. You know, it's interesting, though, because the thing you say, Abby, raises this idea that you could take 100 people from journalism and ask them who the journalists they admire or respect the most are and get 100 different answers, right? That we don't have necessarily agreed upon barometer 
And also that what Washington and official Washington and the gatekeepers and tastemakers of official Washington with their barometers might look very different than you or I or someone else, right? That we have different ideas of what constitutes good journalism or the journalistic ideal or the thing that we're going after. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And, um, you know, yeah, it's no, it's natural and normal for us to value different things as human beings. But we put a lot in politics, which is what I, you know, spent where I spent most of my career. We put a lot of value in the kind of reporting that is centered on white male DC. That's the reality is that that is deemed to be the most valuable type of intelligence reporting that is out there. And other types of reporting, whether it's reporting that happens outside of Washington, whether it is reporting that is analytical in nature, uh, whatever it is, other types of reporting that might center different things and especially different people, you know, is not as highly valued, okay? It's, it's just not. And um, it, it's a function a little bit of who has power in Washington um, and uh, the way in which we see, you know, certain groups as special interest groups, like Black people as special interest groups and, and Latino people as special interest groups. But um, until we recognize that, we, we're never going to really, like, investigate what that really means for our journalism and the quality of journalism that we're producing. And the and and then when we look around and we ask, oh man, why are there not any? Um, why are there so few black and brown, you know, political journalism stars? And it's like, well, because you don't value the kind of work that they're doing. That's the answer to the question. And so um, we have to we have to think about those assumptions that we make about um, it's not the assumptions that we make are not just about our, the electorate, but about uh, who we think is doing great work in our own, own industry, uh, which elevates certain voices or buries other voices and creates a diversity problem um, that perpetuates itself. Well, I think we also need to evaluate when you say when you say um like we, what do we mean by we, right? Because when we, when you say we, you're speaking of a general we. You're not really talking about, you know, <laughs> you're not talking about Abby and Wes or Mara or or Keith. The the we that we're talking about is the people who run the newsrooms, and the people who run the newsrooms are the ones who are making those those value judgments, and they're making those value judgments on the basis of who's covering things that reflect them, right? Because there's a lot of us that 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 have been in this business, a lot of people who don't look like the folks who are running running newsrooms who have who have been you know hitting home runs for a long time right like god Aaron Haynes to, <laughs> like this like that's one that's I consider one one of my best friends like she's fantastic she's but she's been that good for so long there was a point in time when she got hired by a particular newspaper that didn't value her talent. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody who is that who is that good at what she does and having her 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 you know her finger just on on the pulse of of the country and where it's going? She's always been that person. There was a point in time when being that person in the newsroom 
that's supposed to be the newsroom of record for official Washington didn't value that skill. I'm not sure what you really do about that, right? Because like in reality, none of us are, are in a position to make decisions about who gets hired at, you know, and, and who becomes the news director or who becomes the executive producer or who becomes the, you know, who becomes the, the next executive editor of any major, you know, of any major outlet. We're not, we're by and large not in, in those positions. What are their, there are a couple, Marlon Walker, who's down in Mississippi, um, uh, 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 Kevin Merida, who just went to L.A., uh, yeah. Dean Paquet. Mm-hmm. What, what else you got? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, first of all, I think that that's the solution to the problem is that we have to be, we have to be in those positions and we're not. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that more young journalists need to have that aspiration, actually. Um, a lot of times, and you know, like we all go to NABJ and it's like, everybody is like, how do I become Abby Phillip? How do I become, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I would love for someone to come up to me and be like, how do I become Jeff Zucker? Like, <laughs> that's like the other part of this. I think maybe there's just not enough emphasis on the backroom jobs, like the back of this, you know, the the behind the stage, behind the scenes jobs that are incredibly influential. Um, you know, I'm not a powerful person where I work, okay? Like there are like 30 other people who I work for who are more powerful than me that make decisions about things that happen in my life and in my world every single day. And we just need more people who see themselves in those roles and we need to prioritize that as much as we prioritize who's in front of the camera, who has the byline, so on and so forth. You know, Abby, before we wrap, I wanted to ask you, getting back from the theory of journalism and the state of journalism to the journalism itself, uh, what are what are some stories uh, or some storylines you're following this coming year, things you're excited for, things you think people should keep an eye on? I can't get out of my head um, you know, the impact of this pandemic on education and kids who completely dropped out of the system. We don't know where they are. We don't know what they're doing. Maybe they'll never come back into the system uh, in terms of the school system. And um, they're they're lost to us. And um, I think that that is a story that has such profound, you know, implications for this country, for social stability, for a whole generation, particularly of black and brown kids. Uh, I think it needs more investigation and more focus and more accountability. I don't think there's enough accountability out there about what's going on with um, with the kids who who, you know, fell out of the system as a result of the pandemic. OK, so that's one. Um, I'm fascinated by, you know, how the world like really kind of re reopens, how we deal with the social strain of reopening that we are already seeing. Like some people, it's like, you know, the, the people who don't want to get vaccines, the people who are kind of displaced economically as a result of that. Um, you know, this new generation of anti-vaccine believers that is being born out of this pandemic, 
you have like rank and file regular old people um, in our communities, in our families who are becoming anti-vaxxers. And that is a really important development in the world. Okay. And uh, we need to follow that and not, 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 uh, be addicted to stereotypes about who's an anti-vaxxer and who's not. It's not just the Trumpers. I'm sorry, it's not. It's a lot of Black people too. It's a lot of, you know, it, I think that's, to me, I'm like looking at this happening in slow motion. I'm like, whoa, this could be a really, really big deal. Should we be covering that story from a from a place of getting vaccinated is a good thing overall for society? Or should we be entertaining the idea that Maybe people should have more choice in that. Well, look, I, I feel like we're we're like touching on something. We're like at the end, and we're touching on like a really hot topic. I feel like my look. I've covered different permutations of anti-vaccine movements, and almost all of them are based on predatory misinformation and disinformation that targets people. Um, targets people based on their willingness to believe outlandish things. If there was any reason for us to believe as a society that the vaccines that we have available to the public, uh, there was there was real uh, concern about them, then sure, let's let's have that debate. But that's not what's going on here. And there's a real danger. I mean, vaccines have made this world profoundly safer. Um, in a lot of different ways. And uh, and it is because we have had people, kids vaccinated at a young age. Most parents don't even question it. They get their kids vaccinated, they go to school and they don't get the measles and they don't get polio. I think it's really important to not entertain pseudoscience. And the vast majority of what is out there in the anti-vax movement is, is pseudoscience. And we need to be clear about that. So I think it's important to get a hold of that stuff pretty early on. Wait a minute, can we can we play a game before we leave? I want to play a game. What you got? Can we play a game. So Mar, we, we I want to play a game called Read Mara's Tweet. Did uh, anybody see? Did anybody read Mara's tweet? I did not see Mara's tweet. So our esteemed dear co-host, who is not with us because she's probably on her way to some like tropical island or whatever wherever she's going, she sent out a tweet about this episode that says. At Abby D. Phillip joins us to discuss the ongoing threat to voting rights. Plus, we congratulate her on her new show, Inside Politics Sunday, and her other big news. But we ain't talked about no other big news. I don't know what other <laughs> big news she's talking about. Ain't nobody brought it. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I was wondering when y'all were going to ask me about that. What's your big news? Well, the other big news is that I am having a baby hey! in August. <laughs> Very short order. It's coming up very soon. And I saw Wes recently, so he's seen the condition that I'm in, in this heat. And that's about I'm, 100 degrees in D.C. I'm barely it. hanging you, on. Well, congratulations. That is fantastic. We are we are happy to see it and happy to hear it. And we wish you and baby Philip all the best when he or she do you know what you're having it's a girl she's it's, it's a girl. girl yes abby remind people when and where they can watch your show inside politics sunday at 8 a.m eastern time every sunday 
Abby, Phil, thank you so much for having us. As always, listeners, thank you for being here with us at Run Tell This. Uh, check us out on social media at runtellthis underscore on all of the various social media platforms. Tweet us, Instagram us, and whatnot. Thank you all for listening. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.